time that uh, goes through. I'm going to start off with a, a strange verse, which has, it seems like nothing to do with any of this. Our first verse uh, for this morning is going to be from 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. We are hard pressed on every side, and yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken by God, no way. Struck down, not destroyed, not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus. I want to explain that one just for a moment. What does that mean? Christ suffered for our sake. And when we endure adversity and suffering, it's part of what gives us participation in the divine nature. That's what scripture teaches. That's how we participate with Christ. That's the way we identify with Christ because he was identifying with us in our suffering. And so we're always carrying around in the body the dying of Christ, the dying of Jesus. We never forget that. We never forget the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be made visible. (laughs) It's not all about suffering and hand-wringing and whining and moaning. There's that sense of joy and of celebration because the life of Christ is in us. We are not forsaken. We are not despondent. And so Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. Notify your faces. Smile. Let some joy exude from you. Okay, and let everybody around you sense that and feel that. Because as much as we endure adversity and we all go through stuff, okay, as much as we do, we have Christ and Christ has us. And in that there is great joy to be found. So we're continuing our journey through the book of Ezra. It's a difficult book to preach from. Why? Because it's mostly history. (laughs) I don't know how you are, but a lot of us hated history in school. Well, why was that? Well, because it was boring. (laughs) It had um, too many dates. It had too many events. It had too many names. And we were supposed to memorize all those and and remember all those. You know, I had better things to do with my life, you know. Um, There was no adventure to it. There was just no adventure to it. There was, there was nothing that sparked our imaginations as the teacher droned on and on about old dead people because we couldn't see how it applied to us. What's that got to do with me? We weren't part of the story, and so it was somebody else's story. And you're listening to somebody else's story, and I, I'm just not interested in that. Too often our history teachers failed to put us in the shoes of those old dead guys so we could appreciate what they were going through. We never saw ourselves as their children and grandchildren. We could not understand that we inherited their world. We inherited their world, and it has become our world. When you read the Bible, we have a course on how to study your Bible. One of the first instructions is, put yourself in the shoes of the people in the story. See their world as they saw their world. See their circumstances as they saw their circumstances. Then it begins to make sense because then in looking at what they were going through, you can identify, you can make those points of connection between the life that you're living and the life that they lived. Now here's the kicker. We are right now, today, here in this church, building the world that we are going to leave to our children and to our grandchildren. Whoa. We're building it on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. That's what it said in Ephesians 2.20. Today we'll read about how building the temple was put on hold 
The lesson is that when we encounter opposition to the work that lies before us, we must not give up. Stuff happens. All of us have an agenda. We wake up with an agenda in the morning, and something is always going to get in the way. Don't give up. We may need to stop doing what we're doing for the present, but we never stop preparing for the future. We can put down the hammer and the nails and yet go gather some wood. We can put down the, the bricks and, and begin to mix some more cement, some more concrete, some more mortar. But we don't stop working. We don't stop any of that. We begin to gather the things that we'll need when the opportunity arises again to begin again. We are preparing for that time when the work can begin again. Right now we may be on hold, but we are preparing for the time when God has made provision so we can begin the work again. The time when God makes provision for us to build again. For us in the church, it means preparing for the time when others will build. And that may be past our own lifetime. We are building a future that may be well beyond our own lifetime. And yet we are diligently building that future today. Jesus said, I'm always working. Wolf said, careful, Bill. All of us have, uh, you know, this workaholic uh, gene. And <laughs> yes, but when you strive for the Lord, it's joy. It's not drudgery. We're not trying to earn anything by it, except the glory of God. I'm working because my Father is always working. John 5, 17. Those are words to live by. God doesn't just know the end from the beginning. He ordains it. He declares the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46.10 God is busy right now, if you didn't know. God is busy right now bringing about the end from the beginning. And we are the means He uses to build the future which He has ordained from eternity past. So there on the, on the board you see a picture of five generations. The great-grandmother, the grandmother, the mother, the daughter, the child, generation upon generation. So too in the church, generation upon generation. It began in Genesis, the book of generations. And, and so we are in that course of history. That's our story that we're looking at. Well, these generations described in Ezra have a lot in common with our generation here today in this 21st century, as Jason pointed out two weeks ago. <laughs> he was going on and on describing what was going on in Ezra. He says, does this sound familiar? Because <laughs> that's our story. Their story is part of our story. Here's a hard truth. Sins are intergenerational. Sins are intergenerational. Their consequences can persist to the third and fourth generations. Exodus 34, 7. But as Jason also shared, God's promises are intergenerational too. There's a continuity to his covenants and a continuity to his faithfulness. Through all the generations, God remains faithful. He gives us a promise that he will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. I hold on to that every day. Because I've had locusts in my life. I don't know how it's been in yours, but I've, I've squandered a bunch of time. I've squandered a bunch of opportunities. And it's nice to know that God will restore the years which the locusts have eaten. And so we read in Deuteronomy, Therefore know that the Lord your God, <laughs> He is God. More than that, He's the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy. How long? A thousand generations. With who? 
with those who love him and keep his commandments. What a promise. What a promise. Now, the Babylonian captivity of the Jews was caused by the sins of their fathers. Why am I paying the penalty? (laughs) Well, you're not paying the penalty for the sin. You're living the consequences of the sin. Those are not the same thing. Don't, please, don't confuse that. Why is God picking on me for something somebody else did? He's not. He's not. But all of us, all of us impact other people's lives. For better or for worse. Three generations were impacted during the 70 years of captivity. Why do you say that? Well, we consider a generation to be like 20 years. From the time you're born until the time you can produce children, that's a generation. Roughly 20 years. So there were three generations that, that stayed in, in Babylon. All three generations have returned to Judah. And all three have a different reaction to being home. Well, to being there. The first generation weeps, knowing what they've lost, knowing what it cost. This is not the home that I remember. No, it's not. No, it's not. The second generation sings for joy to regain possession of the promised land of their childhood. Oh, there's where I used to play in the street. We used to play soccer over there. They're joyous. They grew up there and then got carted off to Babylon. Wolf described that for us last week. But that third generation, which knew only Babylon as their home, probably responded differently, wouldn't you? Put yourself in their shoes. Now, the text doesn't say anything, but put yourself in your shoes. How would you feel? Why am I going wherever this place is that you keep talking about? I heard granddad talking about that, but why do I have to go? Why can't I stay here? This is, this is where I made my life. This is where all my friends are. This is... At the Exodus, Israel headed for a land they had never known. And some longed to return to the Egypt that they did know. These youngsters may have felt like that. The familiar is gone. It's 900 miles away and 40 days, four months on foot. Four months on foot to make that journey. And every day they took a step, it was further and further and further away from everything they knew. They'd left their world, they'd left their homes and their playgrounds, they'd left their friends. They'd left the marketplace that they used to buy stuff at. The mighty rivers and the vast plains. The Tigris-Euphrates Valley is exquisite. I mean, it's just gorgeous. When the ark landed, that's where it landed, in the Valley of Shinar. That's where it is, between the Tigris and the Euphrates. Oh, that's where mankind grew. Oh, that's where they built the Tower of Babel. Oh, (laughs) that's where Abraham came from. Oh. That place, yeah, that place. They remember the harvest songs and the plenty of that nation. It was the, it was the mightiest nation on earth. They were living there, like, like us, living in America. Can't get baby formula, but we've got everything else. But all of that stuff, the marching armies that the ground used to rattle as the armies were coming, returning from battle victorious, and everybody is singing and shouting, trumpets are playing, And you were just thrilled to watch this go by. I mean, rank upon rank upon rank. Really, thoroughly impressive. And here you are in the midst of a pile of rubble. No armies, no valley, no harvest, gone. 
All of it gone. Now look, in seasons of great change, we're tempted to think only of what we've lost. Isn't that true? Don't you find that for yourself? You only think about what you used to have. You don't think of what you currently have. And you don't conceive of what might lie ahead with just a little planning and effort. Just a little planning and effort. That's all it's going to take. Get your eyes off the past and start looking towards the future. What are you going to build from today on? Yeah, but I had these hopes and I had these dreams. I don't care. What hopes and dreams are you going to build now for the future? You are building your future today. The church is building the future for generations to come today. Now up to chapter 7 of this book, we're reading a history that began with the destruction of the temple, 586 B.C. You're going to start with those dates and events and people we don't know? Yep. Man, can I sleep now? Uh, well, <clears throat> to help out, if you open up your bulletin, there's this little blue sheet in there, and there's a chronology with all those old dead guys and dates and events, and that's all on there for you. Uh, don't throw it away. Uh, you can use that uh, every week as we're studying the book of Ezra to try to keep things in order in your head, just to put things in place. So the destruction of the temple in 586 was followed by the Babylonian captivity and then the release of the Jewish exiles in 539. Wait a minute, Jason said 538. Yes, I know. Here's something you may not know. Minutia, trivia. Okay. Uh, their year began in autumn. <laughs> it didn't begin January 1st. So when did these events happen? Well, their year overlaps our year. So both 538 and 539 are covered by the same year in the Middle East. Just so you know. So when you see those dates, you know, with a slash in between, you go, what, couldn't they make up their mind? Why are they trying to fudge the numbers? No, no, that's not what's going on. We're just trying to point out that their years and our years aren't the same. So we're trying to help you with that. So anyway, that was followed by the, that in 539. They laid the temple's foundation in 536, as we heard about last week. And that's where we're at in this particular story this week in chapter 4. Again, put yourself in their shoes. That temple won't be finished till 20 years from now. 516 B.C. 70 years after its destruction. All these dates that I'm boring you with, like I say, are on your handout. That's to help you put them in order. It's to help you grasp the scope. The scope of this story. Why? Because it's your story. It's your story. Any of you ever do a genealogical uh, research? Some of us can't, you know, because all of those records are gone. You know, my dad left nothing. I went to his uncle who was still living. He wouldn't say a word. You know, made me think they <clears throat> snuck into the country. Uh, but it's hard when you don't have those records. But if you do this genealogical study, one of the things you get is this rhythm. As you go generation after generation after generation of, of the people that have preceded you, Oh, so that's where I came from. Oh, so that's our stories. Oh, so that's where I fit into the scheme of things. So that's part of who I am. Yes, it is. Studying the Bible is that. <laughs> it's a genealogical study of your forebears. Everybody has a genealogy in Scripture. This is where we came from. It's your story. Now, Esther's story is going to take place around 480 B.C., 55 years from now. Remember, we're in 536. So 55 years from now, she's going to show up, Esther. Ezra, now what, the book is named after Ezra. Yeah, Ezra is not going to arrive on the scene until 460 B.C., 75 years from now. Wow. Nearly four generations. Oh. 
And Nehemiah won't be given the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until 15 years after that. What does that mean? That means this whole generation that we're reading about and their children will be gone. You're in the midst of something that's going to go bye-bye as you read this story. Well, guess what? That's where you're at. Our generation is passing. A new generation is arising. You came from a generation that has passed and gone. There's a generation ahead that's coming. Can you see yourself in the flow and in the stream of history? That's where Scripture gets to be fun. It's 140 years of Jewish history in one book. Today's passage is in the middle of all that. It's after the exiles returned, but before the temple has been rebuilt. At the return, the Jews rebuilt their towns and then the house of the Lord. At least they started to. They got the the foundation laid. Their first task was to erect the great altar. That was in chapter 3. Wolf covered that last time. Just so you're aware, these sermons, because we do exegetical preaching, we go line by line, um, we are looking at trees and we, we often have difficulty looking at the forest. And so every week is a chapter in the story. It is an ongoing revelation of the word of God. Okay, so every week you build on what was said last week and we are going to continue next week you know, with some more of the story. Okay, so there is, oh wait, there's like a flow of history (laughs) that's coming to us week after week from the pulpit. Yes, yes, yes there is. They offered sacrifices morning and evening. They kept the Feast of Booths and all the appointed feasts. Good little boys and girls. They did what they were supposed to do. And in the second year, Joshua, or Yeshua, or Yeshua, and Zerubbabel, Sounds like I'm speaking in tongues. Reorganized. Reorganized the priests and the Levites to prepare for rebuilding the temple. And again, that was Ezra 3, 2 through 8. We read there that there was fierce opposition by the locals when the Jews began reconstruction. And if you're like me, you might wonder, why? (laughs) Why? Really? What do they care whether the temple gets rebuilt or not? What's that to them? Why do they have a stake in this? And who are these locals anyway? And Wolf explained all that for us last week. So I deleted two pages from my sermon. (laughs) Thanks, Wolf. (laughs) Wolf explained that they were occupying the Jews' land. Folks were there occupying the Jews' land, and uh, uh, they kind of resented the fact that the guys had shown back up. So that conflict that we see in Palestine, that's in the news week after week, day after day. That fight for the land is nothing new. It goes all the way back to Abraham, who was a stranger in a strange land. Having only God's promise that the land would belong to his seed after four, wait for it, generations of bondage in Egypt. Generation upon generation upon generation. Get the theme? Yeah. He traveled to Mount Moriah. Where's that? Well, one day it's going to be called Jerusalem. One day it's going to be called the city of David. One day it's going to... And he went to Mount Moriah. Well, where where on Mount Moriah? Well, right about the place where David laid the threshing floor for the temple sacrifices. That's where Abraham went. That's about 2000 BC. David's going to show about 1000 BC. Generation upon generation upon generation. You getting a feel for it? Moses, too, was a stranger in a strange land, an exile. He named his son Gershom. 
Yeah, so? Uh, Gershon means foreigner. Gershon means foreigner. There Moses was in a foreign land, and he knew it. This is not my home. I don't live here. And here is my child born here. And I'm going to call him foreigner as a daily reminder that every time I call his name, clean up your room, get to the dinner table, wash behind your ears. I'm being reminded that we are foreigners, strangers in a strange land. We Christians are strangers in a strange land. We Christians are strangers in a strange land. We are in search of a better country, a heavenly country, where God has prepared a city for us, and we have a better covenant than the Jews had. That's what we find out in Hebrews 11, 16, and 8, 6. But these things, these people and events are our roots. These people and these events are our roots. We're part of the seed promised to Abraham. We number more than the sands on the shore, and we are a blessing to the nation. That's who we are. We are a blessing to the nations. We hear this morning. We number more than those sands, and we have a role to play in this ongoing story. Because it's our story, as well as theirs. So the locals didn't greet the returning Jews with open arms. Oh, goody, goody, you're back, you're back. You know, you want a house? You take my house. You want a field? Take my field. I'm so glad you've, you've come. That's the background. That's the background. Let me tell you that the feeling was mutual. The Jews weren't too happy to see the locals either. We're midstream, again, between dashed hopes and future dreams. We're living in the gap between the already and the not yet. You guys keep saying that. Yes, we do. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. Because that's where we are. Again, it's now 536 B.C. in our timeline. The question for us today is one that applies to all times and to all places and to all circumstances. What do we do now as we await the promised future? Okay, finally, Ezra chapter 4. Here come the locals to greet the Jews. Verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, oh, oh, goody, goody, let us help build it with you. Can we play? Now notice it says here they're adversaries. It doesn't say that they're friends. They're saying between the lines, let us help in the work. Let us intermarry with you and corrupt you as our forefathers did generations ago. Let us become co-heirs in the covenant promise with you by marriage. Let us do that. For we worship your God as you do. We're just like you, man. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. This is both a deceit and a scheme. They added God to a pantheon of gods. He was just one more in a long line of. They were all worshipped equally. They mixed religions together as if none of them were true. Sound familiar? That's our time. That's our day. We had a president of the United States say, well, we all worship the same God. I don't think so. Georgie. We call it syncretism. For those of you who are in class, there's been some frustration. We use all these big words with all those ologies on the end. Well, here's another one of them. Big words, okay. Syncretism. What does that mean? 
You stick things together that don't belong together. And then you try to make one thing out of them. Oh. We all worship the same God, they say. But if these locals join with the Jews, what can they do? They can sabotage the construction. Oh, gee, the wall fell down. Sorry. Golly gee, the mud, you know, it was too loose and all the bricks fell off the wall. Sorry. Did we do that? Old TV series. Mr. Mr. Urkel, you know, anyway. But if the Jews succeed, even if they can't block them, if the Jews succeed, they can take credit for it with the Jews. Look what we did. The Jews didn't do that. We did that. We built that place for them. They want to share in the credit. So verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, as if with one voice, quote, I'm sorry, you have nothing, nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. Not your God, our God. This one you think is God, that's not God. Our God is God. But we alone, we alone will build to the Lord the God of Israel, not the God of Samaria, not the God of you folks who wandered into the land, the God of Israel, the one God. As King Cyrus, by the way, the king of Persia has commanded us. Remember that guy that runs everything? The guy you really don't want to cross? Look, he says, go build. You know, you got a beef, take it up with him. They cite the king who rules over them both as the reason for their refusal. That's diplomatic. Good job. Honoring this earthly king, Cyrus. But it also avoids a needless confrontation. Discretion the better part of valor? Yeah, yeah. No offense, we're just obeying Cyrus. But it sure sounds like Abram. Remember when he rescued the five kings? They offered him a share of the loot. And Abram replied to them, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Why not? Lest you say, I have made Abram rich. No, no, no. It's Genesis 14, 22. All glory belongs to God alone, and God alone is the Lord. That was a statement by Abram. That's a statement by these heads of the clans. Our God is the God. And then the people of the land showed their true colors. <laughs> they discouraged the people of Judah. That's a euphemism. It literally says they weakened their hands. Now, uh, imagine you, you've come back. There, there's not that many of you, comparatively speaking, to all those that are in the land. And your hands begin to shake. And you're trying to pick up the bricks and, and put them in place, you know, and it's kind of, you know, off to one side because your, your hands are weak because your knees are shaking because you've got opposition. Any of you ever had that sort of opposition? Been in school and had a bully pick on you? You know, you're afraid to go into school because the teacher ain't going to do anything. Principal's not going to do anything. Your friends say, that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> they weaken your hands, and that's what's going on here. And they made them afraid to build, and they bribed the king's counselors against them. They bribed them. It's like the richest men in the world were going and paying money. You'd get political favors. How can that be? So they bribed these counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. And the question is, for how long? How long is this going on? I mean, you know, news cycle is good for a day, you know. How long is this going to go on? For all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So you got your 
little handout there with the chronology, right? Darius would become king of Persia in 520 BC, 16 years from now. That is how long they opposed the Jews nonstop with mostly peaceful riots. Verse 6. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they, they wrote an accusation. These people against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Some think this refers to the husband of Esther. I read you the chronology. No, 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 that's not possible. But this king is more likely to be Cambyses. Who? Uh, it's actually in the history books. It's not just in the Bible. You can actually find that one. Cambyses, the son of Cyrus. He's called Artaxerxes in the next verse, which is his title. His title, not his name. There's no confusion going on here. That's his title. But not everyone agrees with that. Only Billy says that, and, you know, and so it's in my opinion, and you can take that for what it's worth. In the days of Artaxerxes, we see that Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and was translated, I assume, into the Chaldean language. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshay, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem. Huh. Didn't write it against people. They wrote it against the entire stinking city. What's with that? Well, this home of the Jews, that's why this city. We don't even want them to have a home. And until 1947, they wouldn't. Huh. To Artaxerxes, the king as follows. Quote, Rehum, the commander, Shimshay, the scribe, famous guys that we are, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites. That's so you know in western Iran, Persia's winter capital. And that does show up in Esther. And the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Oz, oh, wait a minute, Oz-Napar. <laughs> it's not a Z, it's an S. <laughs> Deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, that's us, they say, uh, but that's beyond the Euphrates. Where's the boundary? The Euphrates. It's outside your turf, but it's where we are. And by the way, we're your loyal citizens, unlike these people. Osnabar was an Assyrian king, apparently the one who repopulated Samaria with foreigners. These locals that we've been looking at last week in this, following its capture in 722 BC. Yeah, but this is like 536. Can't bygones be bygones? Why are people bringing up the past like this? Because they think in the Middle East, unlike here in America, in terms of generations. I was in college. I had a course on world politics, and my professor was from China, mainland China. Not Chinese born in America, Chinese Chinese. And he says, we will bury you. And I said, why? And he says, because you people can't hold a train of thought for longer than 30 seconds. We think in terms of generations. We will outwit you. That was in the 1960s. Huh. So verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that they sent, in case you thought this was the original. <laughs> To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, <laughs> the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. Yo, and now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us. <laughs> Don't think that scripture isn't funny. <laughs> I can't believe you, king, dumped these people on us. 
They have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding their rebellious and wicked city. Not a wicked and rebellious people. These wicked and rebellious city. The city of David. Who? Well, the one who slew Goliath, whose seed is Messiah. That's who. These people are going to run things. We need them out of here. They're finishing the walls and they're repairing the foundations. Quick, do something. Verse 13. Now it is, now be it known to the king. In case you didn't know, king, okay, you don't have social media, you know, you're not on, on, on Twitter, okay, that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finish, listen to this, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. <laughs> Prophets in their own time. They are smearing the Jews in the king's eyes. Character assassination is not a new habit. It has been going on since the beginning. Cain smeared the reputation of Abel. Now, verse 14, because we eat the salt of the palace. <laughs> we're just faithful servants, man. We're friends of yours. You know, we're, we're part of the, the, the covenant with you people. And it's not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. In other words, uh, as friends of the palace, we don't want you to be defamed by associating with these Jews. These deplorables. Therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You'll find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city. Go ahead. Check it out for yourself. Hurtful to kings and provinces. And that sedition, sedition I say, was stirred up from of old. And that's why this city was laid waste. What do we call that? Racism? Yeah. This is anti-Semitism in all its ugliness. This is guilt by race. Again, nothing new. Nothing new. So, we're doing you a favor. We're making known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. They will rob you blind. They're accusing the Jews of plotting an insurrection. <laughs> I love scripture. <laughs> uh, it's a plea to the king to nip it in the bud. Stop this people before the temple is rebuilt. Because once it's rebuilt and they call upon their God, we're going to find ourselves in a civil war. <laughs> oh, the Jews will divide your kingdom and steal tribute owed to the king. They're troublemakers, a stiff-necked people who are never content, whose bellies are their gods. Yeah, that's the cancel culture. Nothing new under the sun. Read Ecclesiastes. Nothing new under the sun. This is a scathing indictment, but these are the sins of their fathers who are dead and buried. Sound familiar? Now, God gave this same indictment through the prophet Isaiah. When? 200 years earlier. <laughs> and they want to stir it all back up again. Have they remained the same generation? Have they remained the same kind of people? Generation after generation. Whether they live in Babylon or they live in Jerusalem, does their heart remain corrupt and rebellious? I don't like that question. Are they still in bondage to sin like their forefathers in the desert and even in the promised land? Oh. Are we still plagued by a sinful nature and still in need of a savior? Yes, we are. 
Yes, we are. And thanks be to God, we have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Now, verse 17, the king sent an answer. Respond, text. To Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria, and in the rest of the province beyond the rivers, yo, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. <laughs> and I made a decree. And a search has been made, and it's been found that the city, this city, this Jerusalem from of old, has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in <laughs> You're right. You're right. Thank you so much for sending me the letter, letting me know. And mighty kings have, have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river. That's my turf. To whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Who's he talking about? David. Solomon. They have long memories across generations. They remember all that stuff. And that's why the locals aren't happy to see them. They remember those days. Remember how Solomon's servants, when Solomon had died, all of those had been building these 400 temples to his wives. Okay, they come along and they go to Solomon's son and they say, so, can you finally get the whip off our backs? Can you, can you finally let us have a little sniff of freedom? Can we finally have something of our own? You know, can we have a life? Oh, if you thought my father whipped you with whips, I will whip you with scorpion's tails. Not diplomatic. It's, yeah, and everything went, you know, the kingdom was split, everything, mayhem ensued. Yeah, so anyway, verse 21. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that the city not be rebuilt. Not until a decree is made by me. Now, in case you thought that when this release from Babylon came, it only involved the Jews, it didn't. They said, all you foreigners we want out of our shores. Get out of here. All of you, go back home. I know the guys before us brought you all here. We don't want you here. Get out of here. So all these people had gone. So now he's finding out that this one set, this one group, this one culture, these Jews are troublemakers for anybody because they have the one God as their God and they actually believe it. Not like the rest of these people we brought in. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Don't hesitate. Don't falter. Make sure it happens today. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Very worried about his reputation, isn't he? About his possessions. About his rule. About his dominion. And if there is a God, he would have to submit to him the way Nebuchadnezzar did. And he wants no part of that. He's heard those stories. I ain't going to eat grass in the field. Not me. Nuh-uh. Verse 23, and then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshe, the, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power they made them cease. And then the work on the house of God that was in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Sixteen years later. The Greek historian Herodotus, who lived about the same time, tells us the penalty for disobedience under Persian rule was torture for many days and then death. So discretion being the better part of valor, the Jews stopped building. My mama didn't raise no fools. The work ceased by force, but apparently the Israelites didn't mind. This is the point we want to examine more closely. What should we do in the gap while we're waiting for God to act? Later we'll hear from the prophet Haggai. 
that they said to themselves at this point in time, well, you know, ain't 70 years yet. Time hasn't come to rebuild the the house of the Lord. So uh, we get to skate for 16 years. Now, everybody disagrees on when that 70 years begins. Some would say 605, some say 597, some say 586. Don't you people all read the same book? Don't you call the same? No, there's actually some disagreement (laughs) among interpreters. But nonetheless, time hasn't come. 70 years aren't yet finished, so let's put our feet up. Let's put our feet up. We got time. We got time, man. 16 years will go by before the work begins again. And meanwhile, the Jews have their paneled houses and their fields and their cattle in the stalls. They can fill their bellies and harvest their crops and drink their wine and go on about their business like the rest of the nations around them. They're not a threat anymore to the king. They're just trying to fit in and make a life for themselves. Sounds so much like many Christians today. But the house of God lies there in ruins, and visibly so. Every day they walk by, there's the rubble, there's the pile, there's the work undone, right there, out in the open. It's a constant reminder, and that's Haggai's lament 16 years later, when he exhorts them to begin again and to complete the house of God. Listen. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, this is Haggai speaking 16 years later, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never seem to have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so. For what end? To put them in a bag of holes. A bag with holes in it. The money just disappears. Everything that's in their pocket, they spend. And thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That could be spoken to any one of us at any point in our life. Consider your ways. Where's your focus? Where's your head at? So here we are between the already and the not yet living in the gap. People of God have been put on hold by outsiders. And yet this is by God's design. They have an altar but no temple. Sacrifices but no holy of holies. Robes but no ark. No mercy seat. One day Joshua will be made the high priest and he will be sanctified and ordained as described in Zechariah 3, but not now. Not now. Not yet. They obey to the extent that they are able, but for now they are prevented from doing more. And that's not sin. That's just reality. They must wait for God's provision and for his blessing. They must wait for the fullness of time just as their forefathers waited. Generation upon generation. The temple will be rebuilt as promised, but not today. They have God's promise in hand, and he will bring it to pass in his time. Take that to heart. The promised Messiah will also come in his time, the one who will deliver them from their bondage and restore all things. How do we know? Because it's in Isaiah 53, written 200 years earlier. They all knew it. But will they wait patiently and will they wait faithfully? Haggai says, no, no, ain't going to happen. Listen, we are most susceptible to Satan's temptations in the gap. We are most susceptible to Satan's temptations in the gap. In our leisure time, when our guard is down, 
while we're waiting? When was the golden calf cast? When Moses was up on the mountain, couldn't be seen. But is the guy coming back or what? And the children began to play. That's a life lesson. When are you most at risk in your leisure time, in your downtime, in your off time, in your time that you think is your time? This is the challenge when we wait upon God. It's not meant to be idle time. It's a time to prepare. As I suggested at the beginning, what we're preparing for may not come in our lifetime. And so we build into the generations who will follow us. We preserve what God has entrusted to us today and we invest it in the future. We don't live for today and we don't live for ourselves. Why not? We're Christians. We live for God. We live by faith in Christ. We work in His strength and in the power of His Spirit looking for His return when? Today. We're looking for His return today. Not next week, not next year. We're looking for His return today. If He returned today, we wouldn't be surprised. He's going to come like a thief in the night. We better be ready. Filled with hope. Not dread. Filled with hope. Filled with expectation. Filled with joy. On that day, oh, I so look forward to it. Maranatha, Lord, come. Today would be swell. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, this is from Isaiah 44, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, appointed, ordained by me. And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And it has come true. Prophesied 200 years earlier. And there is the foundation of the temple. It's been laid. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Jeremiah, written 100 years earlier. Consider from this day, from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it is the seed, is the seed, this is a question, is the seed yet in the barn? Is it still out in the field? You people doing work? You harvesting or what? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. However, but, but God, but from this day on, Haggai speaking 16 years from now, but from this day, as a blessing, when you get back to work, when you again take it up, when I have made provision for you and have allowed you to do what it is I've called you to do, on that day and from that day on, I will bless you. In other words, you can't see it yet, but God can. You can't see it yet, but God can. Rest in that. Put your hope in that. When the Israelites left their bondage in Egypt after the ten plagues, they asked their Egyptian neighbors for gold and silver, jewels, clothing, and other precious possessions. Why? And so they plundered, plundered the Egyptians. That's from Exodus 3. 
so that when it came time to build the tabernacle, Moses called upon the people to bring those things and to donate them to the tabernacle. They used their gifts and their talents, the skills they learned in Egypt under bondage, building those pyramids, building all those buildings, harvesting all those fields. They used all those skills they learned in Egypt to construct the wooden frames, to cast the metalwork, to weave and embroider the curtains, and to fashion the holy things of God according to his pattern. What did they do with their time in Egypt? They got skilled. <laughs> what did they do on their way out of Egypt? They got all this stuff together that they would need. They didn't know they'd need it. God knew they'd need it. And so we told them, go, ask for all this stuff, and on your way out, they'll give it all to you. I've ordained that. God gifted and richly blessed them in their bondage as they waited that they might return some of those things to him with thanksgiving. And after 40 years in the desert, which purified and strengthened them, they crossed the Jordan into the promised land and God blessed them again. Deuteronomy 6. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, fulfilling all of my promises, all of my covenants, to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build. And houses full of all good things that you did not fill. And cisterns that you did not dig. And vineyards and olive trees you didn't plant. Be beware, 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 beware. Lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of bondage. We have been brought out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of bondage. We have been set free by our Lord Jesus Christ. He came to set free the captives. We are free. Free now. What will we do with our freedom? No, don't have Mel Gibson in it. <laughs> when God told David that he wouldn't build the temple, when God told David he would not build the temple, David didn't rest. He didn't give up or squander his wealth or waste his time. Instead, he gathered together all the money and all the materials that Solomon would one day need to build the temple when the time would come. He prepared for a future that he would never see. David was a long-term thinker. His sins would impact generations to come, but so would his faithful, so would his faithful preparations. God would bless them with those preparations. What have the exiles brought back with them from their captivity in Babylon? How did God bless them in their sojourning there, and what have they returned to? Well, their lands didn't lie fallow. Their towns hadn't disappeared. God brought in foreigners into the land to tend and maintain them till his people returned. And when they returned, they rebuilt their homes. They planted their fields. They pastured their flocks and their herds, which they had gained in Babylon. No wasted time in God's economy. Whoa. So how do we know that? Let's go back to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. Take wives. Have sons. Have daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give. Multiple generations. Multiple generations. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, generation upon generation and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Why? For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. 
Whoa. So what's the application of all this stuff? We covered a lot. And I'm running a little late because I ran off at the mouth. I apologize. And that's because the book of Ezra, and this chapter in particular, can only be understood in the context of multiple generations. The sins of the fathers can only be grasped in the context of multiple generations. God's covenant faithfulness can only be appreciated in the context of multiple generations. Our preparation for the future must likewise take into account the multiple generations who will follow us. We're all looking forward to Christ's return, which may not come in our lifetime, but that doesn't mean we can put our feet up. Like David, we're preparing for Christ's return by gathering together the resources that they will need, that they will need, like David did for Solomon. We're preparing our generation for the generations to come. We're preserving what God has entrusted to us in the present and investing it in the future. And we do that by investing in the lives of those believers whom God has entrusted to us today. We're planting seed, never knowing which seeds will take root and which will wither in the heat of the sun. We water and we feed them, not knowing when the harvest will come. So we wait patiently, but we wait expectantly. God is the one who causes the increase, not us. Our job is to plant good seed, to sprinkle it with pure water, to provide wholesome and timely food, and do what? Wait on God. If we do that faithfully, God will be faithful to produce His fruit, His fruit, not ours, His fruit in season. Blessings, blessings are intergenerational too. Let's bless the coming generations with our labors. Don't think short term. Let's not plan for just our needs or even the next generation. Let's plan for two, three, and four generations to come. Whoa. Begin building into your grandchildren today by building into your children. You with the youngsters that are only this big. Most of you were only that big when I saw you. Now you're... Let's not plan for just our needs. Think in terms of generations. And don't think of generations as 20 years. Well, it ain't 20 years yet. We got time. No, 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 no. Think spiritual generations. They're much shorter. Jesus made faithful disciples in just three years. That was the first generation. If we had a three-year plan of discipleship, what would God produce in each set of three years? What could God produce in each generation of three years here at Hope Chapel? Can you conceive of that? Can you look at that? Can you think of a future like that? And then ask yourself, what's your role in that ongoing story? What's your role in that ongoing story? Discipling other disciples is good, but discipling disciplers is better. Let's make an army of disciple makers who will produce generations of other disciple makers. We may never see the results in our lifetime, but on that day, we'll meet face to face all those who have gone before us, preparing the way. And may that be said of us when our time comes, that we help prepare the way for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess we so often are short-term thinkers. We think in terms of tomorrow or next week or next month, but generation upon generation seems too far. How can we wrap our minds around that. Oh Lord God, teach us to live today for today for your glory today. 
Teach us to prepare for tomorrow, today. Teach us to focus on your glory and on the good of those around us. To think in terms of our children, our children's children, and their children after them. That they might all sing praises to your holy name. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.